Last week we spent some time here beginning with verse 11 and ending with verse 17. So we're going to, uh, the next part of this segment on Jesus begins in verse 18. It's uh, a dialogue or a conversation really between Jesus and John the Baptist even though they're not together. You know, I had this uh, very strange picture today when Scott was talking about, and I've, I've never contemplated this before and I don't have a good answer, but Scott did an excellent job of creating a very vivid picture. I never really contemplated the significance of what it meant when they dipped you know, the, the sponge or whatever it was in the sour vinegar and put it to his lips. You know, Jesus was thirsty and he was asking. And this was, this was the response to his request. And it was very strange because in that moment, I could tell as, as I can from time to time that the Holy Spirit was trying to bring truth and I wasn't getting it. So, you know, I'm kind of on this quest now to understand what was actually going on in that moment because the picture I kept getting with no understanding was how we do exactly that same thing now. Us, as believers, putting sour vinegar to his mouth. And my mind kind of exploded in the possibilities and I'm, you know, because immediately, any time that I believe something about myself that wasn't, that isn't true, that didn't come from his mouth, then what I'm actually doing is putting, you know, I think every one of us could say, my true identity comes from him. If I want to know who I am, I'm going to have to understand, I'm going to have to go to the voice of the Creator. I'm going to have to go to the one who knows me. I'm going to have to go to the one who spoke me into reality. If I'm going to truly know myself, I'm going to have to go there. So we understand that our source of identity is Him. I'm not confused about by that. But anytime, the picture I got was anytime that I believe something about myself that didn't originate with Him, I got, I got the picture that I was putting vinegar to his mouth. And it was such a strange picture because it, the symbolism doesn't work perfectly. And I know that there's a revelation coming. There's more to this story coming. But I could see that so much of what we do is we put vinegar to his lips. Now, I don't know what Jesus did in that moment. My suspicion is he would spit it out. I don't know that. He might have drank it. I, I, that I couldn't. I, my, my mind is putting something in there that's not there. But I would assume that the bitterness, out of bitterness, he would spit it out. Well, that's what happens when we put false things into Jesus' mouth. He, he, he has to spit them out. Now, we, we take them as if they were from him. It's not true. We place that in his mouth. But it was such strange, one of those moments when I knew God was trying to give me something bigger than I could understand. And I have to put it back to him because there's, there was a powerful reality. You know, it, 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 I know it ties 
to what I shared last Sunday morning. You know, about, the, about how wrong it is or in a, insufficient it is for us to ask the questions about whether or not things in this world are right or wrong or good or bad. And again, how God warned us in Genesis chapter 2 not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One of the reasons, and I believe the primary reason that God would warn us from going to that tree was because he understood that life from that point forward would become about a debate. And that we would be in a constant conversation about whether or not something is good for us or bad for us. Good according to God or bad according to God. And he knew that our conversation would be consumed with that. And I want to tell you the reason that there's churches on so many corners and so many denominations is because we can't agree on what's good within the kingdom and bad in the kingdom. And we know what, we know what the debate has done. We know that there are over 700 laws in the Torah, in the Talmud. The Jews trying to define that. What's good according to God and what's bad according to God. And God's saying all the time, don't eat from that tree. So why in the world would we think today as Christians that it's our, it's our obligation or our responsibility in any form or fashion to try to define what's good and what's bad? I sat with a young man yesterday. I'd never met him before. I'd set up this, this meeting with him in Fort Worth at Kate's request. He had come in to talk to Kate and Kate told him, said, you know, when you get a chance, you need to talk to my dad. So I set up this meeting with him and I met with him yesterday for two hours and he started with these grand theories that he had come up with about idolatry and the effect it was having on the church and, and, and I mean he had put, he, he had these schemes that were working and using some scripture and some scripture from the Apocrypha and he had put this, this great story together and he got, he got through and he said, what do you think? And I said, well, you know, honestly, I don't have an opinion. And it kind of struck him as odd because he had said enough controversial stuff in there to see if I was going to push back. And when I came back and said, you know, I don't really have an opinion about your theory. And it kind of startled him. And he said, why not? And I said, well, and I gave him the typical example that I, that I frequently give is that if, you know, if I build a, a brick wall and I step back away from it and I admire it and think, my goodness, I did a pretty good job. That's pretty remarkable. And so I call a bricklayer friend of mine over, a brick mason, and he comes up and I, I take him out back and so say, look, look at this. And he says, yeah, it's pretty good. And I immediately I'm saying, you know, what do you mean pretty good? He says, well, it's all right, you know, for what it is. And I'm getting mad because I was expecting him to come over and ooh and all over the wall that I built. And so he can tell that I'm getting upset. He says, well, do you have a string? and a plumb bob. And I, said, I said, yeah. He said, would you mind getting it? So I, he holds it up and all of a sudden he holds it up against that wall and I realized, not because he condemned my wall, but he held something true up against it and I, and I could do my own comparison. I didn't have to judge. He didn't have to judge my wall. He didn't have to say whether it's straight or crooked. He just held a standard up against it. I can make my own assessment. I knew that it was off. And so I told him, I said, I don't really have an opinion about your theory. But if you'll, if you'll give me a moment, I'd like to hold a string up against it. 
I'd like to hold truth up against it. It was so strange to see, to see this young man very, so oddly because as Kate had suspected, he's never had anybody to hold truth up against his ideas. And all of a sudden there was a curiosity in him and in questions that you could tell were, were immediate and profound because there was, a, there was something that was true that was held up against his ideas. Well, you know, that's who, that's who we are. I don't need to judge whether somebody's right or wrong. I need to hold the truth up against it and let them do their own comparing. I need to be able, by the truth from God, by the revelation of the Holy Spirit, to hold the truth up there. And, he'll, and, and you know, when somebody comes in and says, I don't know whether I'm saved or not, I, I rarely ask them what happened. Where were you? How old were you? What actually went on? If they want to share that, I'm, I'm glad to listen. But the reality is, well, all I can do is take, take this word, put the truth out there, and, and ask them then at the end, did your salvation look like this? And very often I get, oh no, it didn't look anything like that. I said, well then the, you, you have your own question, and I didn't judge you or condemn you or tell you you're saved or not saved. I just hold the truth up against it. In this story, John the Baptist had a question. All Jesus could do he didn't take on John the Baptist. He didn't try to say you're wrong or he didn't, say, he didn't tell him to go back and point out the error of John's thinking. He held truth up against it so that John could draw his own conclusion. Verse uh, 18, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version uh, rather than the King James tonight. The disciples of John reported all these things to him and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, what in the world would prompt John, having known what he knew, preached what he preached, what would have ever prompted this question in John the Baptist? And it's not as sinister, it's not as, it's, it's not as odd as we might make it out to be, simply because the Jews of the day, understanding in the Old Testament, that the rock was struck twice, believed, at least with some possibility, that there could be two messiahs, two comings. Now they didn't understand that it would be one messiah who came twice. They didn't understand that there would be a first and a second advent. They taught two different people, two different messiahs. So John, we wouldn't be odd for John necessarily to ask this question, but the strangest piece for John was the Messiah that I expected, the, what I thought was going to happen, didn't happen. Because John had been making way the, 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 and, and preaching that, you know, as, as an advance of this coming king. So it was not a great surprise that what he was hearing that Jesus was doing didn't really necessarily make a great deal of sense to him. So he, he comes asking a, a fairly innocent question. Now, how does, what relevance does that have to us today? Well, I want to tell you, and I used to carry this on my wall, the most deadly, it's a Max Licato statement, the most deadly trick of Satan is, is not to steal our answers. The most deadly trick of Satan is to steal our questions. I can tell you there aren't many Christians today, strangely, who have many questions about the truth from God's Word. 
Most of that because they spend no time here and they have no personal history in the Word and they have no pursuit of the Word, they have no pursuit of the truth. So they just take what they're fed, believe it because it was stated, hear it as, as it is given without it ever creating the next question. And I told that young man yesterday, I said, one thing I will tell you is whatever's put you on this quest to come up with these theories, never let anybody diminish the quest. Your pursuit of truth, your, your desire is God-given. It's taking you some, to some strange places, but never let the questions go away. And I said, don't, even, don't believe anything I've said unless the Holy Spirit brings the witness and conviction. So John the Baptist asked a legitimate question. God does not mind when we ask those questions. My teaching on creation, on what happened in Genesis 1 and 2, I can honestly tell you, I did not, I came up, that, that question was on my heart. God, there's got to be more here than what I, what I currently know. I didn't go study, I will listen. And the Holy Spirit brought to me the relevance of that truth. And, you know, it was kind of strange. Uh, just heard about this and saw a little bit of it. But, you know, there was a debate this past week between Bill Nye, the science guy, and the head of this creation museum. And, uh, of course, you know, the, the debate is that, from one, the science guy, that we're the result of a Big Bang and 65 million years old. The position of the creationists is that we're 4,000 years old, and here's, here's how we know that. So that was, the that was the tug of war in the debate. And how odd it was on the 700 Club for Pat Robertson to uh, give this strange answer, happens to be the one that, I agree with in some part. And he said, I don't have an issue with the fact that the earth is 65 million years old. And it was so striking because, you know, you would expect him to immediately agree with the creationists. And he said, we, we are far too fascinated with uh, the, how long this un took to unfold and, and exactly how it was done. He said, we're far too fascinated with, the, with unimportant things. And that's absolutely true. We're far too fascinated with unimportant things. Well, John the Baptist was asking a legitimate question. This, is how, this is, was the answer. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have given good the, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So what's Jesus doing? Why didn't he just simply answer John's question. What, what's the appropriateness of this answer? What do you think? Well, I think when they go back and tell John this thing, John will know the answer. It's exactly right. 
because we understand when we understand what we're supposed to understand what what was every one of these things when when Jesus says go and tell John that you have what you have seen and heard the blind receive their sight the lame walk lepers are cleansed and the deaf and the deaf hear the dead are raised up the poor have good news preached to them what did what's Jesus describing Remember our conversations that are constant conversations. If I'm looking at fruit, I'll do it with this hand. If I'm, if I'm holding fruit in this hand, where does fruit always point? If I'm holding an apple, where did it come from? It came from an apple tree. Now most Christianity today is trying to paste orange peels on apples trying to create a perception of something that is not real as I shared with you other day you know on Sunday morning about God's design we're asking the wrong questions not right or wrong the question is is it according to God's design or is it not that's a very different question because when I come like I did to the question of grace, grace within God's design will always release us to live according to the authority and the purpose held within God's design. Grace outside of God's design simply gives us permission to sin. And Paul says, God forbid. In, in the illustrations, the woman who was caught in adultery. If Jesus had said, go, you know, I, I don't condemn you either, and stopped with that statement, she could have gone back into that same life believing there was no condemnation from Jesus and had received permission to continue in that life. But he said, I've shown you this grace so that I can say, go and sin no more. Live in the goodness of God's design. The woman who came to him at the well, and Jesus had this discourse with her. The grace that he showed her, the teaching that he gave her, created in her a powerful witness so that she could now go back to the city. A discredited woman could now go back in the city and preach and teach Jesus to the point that she brought the mass of people back to the well and started a revival. The grace released her to live according and in the design of God. That's the right question. And, you know, we can tell if somebody has a heart of giving, I can tell you they live within God's design. Because God put the nature in us that we would be givers. If you see someone who's selfish and, 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 and is hesitant to give according to the release of God, I can tell you that their ideas or thoughts are outside of the design of God because he made us contributors to a society. That's why greed is outside of God's design. Selfishness is outside of God's design. Being other-centered and givers are within God's design. And I sat there yesterday and when we, this, I didn't eat, this young man had lunch. So when the bill came, I took it. And I put it down on the seat so he couldn't reach it. And he said, he said let me pay. And I said, no. I said, I'm, I'm, I, I will, but I said, I'm not supposed to today. And uh, he said, why not? And I said, because within God's design, he made us givers. And my, my, my great desire today to, is to give to you. 
Because I understand that if I do according to what God says, then you get what you deserve according to what God's blessing is released through me. And God will also give me what I deserve. That's the economy of God. That's the way it works. That's blessing. And so he's, at, the end of the, at the end of the meal, we'd sit there another hour and talk. And at the end, he opened up his wallet and took out some money and slid it across the table. So what was I supposed to do? What would you have done? Do what? Yeah, our temptation is to slide it back. But what would I have just done? I would have taken him outside of the design of God where he was trying to give. So I, I said, as hard as this is, I'll take it. But what a, and he did it with tears in his eyes. He slid it across the table with tears in his eyes. Because he understood something about, about the design of God and who he made us to be. What's happening here? Jesus is saying, I'm going to hold up all this fruit. Other hand. I'm going to hold up all this fruit so you'll know what. Fruit always points to identity. The apple points to the apple tree. He's saying, I'm going to hold up this fruit so you'll know what. You'll know who I am. I want you to know who I am. Now then. If somebody examines your fruit, would they know who you are? Is your fruit fear, anxiety, doubt, uncertainty? Is your fruit, you know, reckless you know, conversations, gossip? You know, what is your fruit? Because Jesus was bold enough to say, I want you to look at my fruit. Because if you'll look at my fruit, you'll know who I am. That was the question. Who are you? So Jesus said, you go back and you, you describe the fruit. And John the Baptist will know who I am. Are you willing for your fruit to be examined closely? This is... It's strange to pick up theology where you pick it up, but this came from this, this came out of a line from Cheers, the movie that takes place, uh, the show that takes place in a bar. But Diane makes the statement at one time. She said, a, "A life that is not examined isn't a life worth living. We're supposed to live lives that are examined. We should be people who, at any time, who ask us questions, could do exactly what Jesus did and say, let me hold up the fruit.'" <coughs> Let me hold up the fruit so that you can see my identity. You know, Matthew sitting here as a lone high school student. One of the hardest things to do at that age <coughs> is to let anybody examine your fruit. Because there's so much maneuvering at that age, and, we, and it, it doesn't end at that age. We, we keep at it, pretty good at it. We just pick a lot of it up at that age simply because there's the interactions of, of these interpersonal relationships saying it's very, hard, it's very hard to actually let anybody see who I truly am. It's rare when you can find a student 
who has enough assurance of who he is and confidence in who he is and, and goodness to, to say, please examine my fruit. I want you to. I want you to look at who I am. I want you to look deep into who I am. And I want you to, I want you to be able to see. I want you to point back at an identity. Matthew's one of those young men willing to have fruit examined because he doesn't mind somebody knowing who he is. It's pretty rare. You can find them. They're there. Most are worried about other things. Trying to be accepted, trying to maneuver ourselves, trying to trying to be what we're not and, and hoping somebody will like us and upset because somebody doesn't. But it doesn't necessarily change from high school. We do it very much as adults. We don't want our fruit examined. We don't want somebody to look closely because of what they might see and how odd it is that that's exactly what Jesus did to John the Baptist's question. Let me hold up my fruit and, you, and you'll know what kind of tree it came from. Are you willing to have your fruit examined? Who you are when nobody's looking? Kind of a strange thought. Because most of us would say, you know, no thanks. Don't really want anybody looking that close. We'll, we'll read the end of it. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Now this would be a great opportunity, I guess, for Jesus to say, I can't believe he asked me that question. I can't believe that. After all, we've, after all he knows, I can't believe John knows that question. That's not what, at all what Jesus says. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in, in, in soft clothing? Behold... Those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized of them. To what then shall I, I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating, eating no bread and drinking no wine. You say, he is a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. You say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. You'll know wisdom by the offspring. It's so amazing that Jesus speaks of John the Baptist and says, you saw more than a prophet because there is none greater 
than what John the Baptist was, who he is. All the question did was give Jesus an opportunity to give John the Baptist reassurance of who he was. Great fruit inspecting. Great evidence of the tree. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that that you teach us, Lord, in such unusual ways within these passages. We know the story, and we've, we've taught it many times. Lord, but how unusual it is to realize that what you were pointing to was the evidence of fruit that the Holy Spirit had performed through you. You were holding it up for John to inspect, and by your confession, saying, if you want to know who I am, if you want to know if I'm the one, or if there will come another. Look at the fruit. Just look at the fruit. I pray, Lord, that we too, equipped as you were equipped by the work of the Holy Spirit, would always be willing to say, take a look at any moment at what the Holy Spirit's doing in us and through us. Inspect the fruit. See who we are. And know who we belong to. I pray, Lord, that what you did in that hour is what we would freely do. Be ready at any moment to bear witness of who you are and your strength in us and let someone inspect the fruit and see the evidence of, of, of who you made us to be. It's a simple picture, powerful one, but simple. We speak it in Jesus' name. Amen.